when my sibling came out, I think I was in like probably like sixth or seventh grade. So I was probably 11 or something, 12. I They told me that they were non-binary and I was like, cool. Do you want to talk about it? And then they did. And I was like, cool. And then that was that. So. <laughs> Hi, and welcome to Non-Binary Gender Scholarship and Experience. This is Peyton. And this is Zenon. Today, our subject is the experience of non-binary gender in interpersonal relationships. We'll touch on how non-binary individuals interact with their friends, family, and romantic partners. That was Julia responding to this question that we asked our panelists. How has your gender affected your interpersonal relationships? So, for example, with coworkers, friends, family, partners, etc. To answer the question, it hasn't really with my family because I'm not very out at the moment to most of them. I'm out to my older brother, Zenon, and that's about it. Um, And again, a lot of my friends are trans, and those who aren't are almost all something else, LGBTQ+, and the sparse few who aren't are all allies. My friend group's actually more like 90% trans. So like, yeah, no, no issues here. I also like, I look how I look. You choose how you deal with it. There's other people I can hang out with. As we just heard, Splash and Biff are both in friend groups where trans and gender non-conforming folks are the majority. Splash found this through the internet, while Biff found this through going to physical places like bars and drag shows. However, not every non-binary person has this much luck with finding their group. I'm friends with like a lot of different people of different walks of life. I go to Michigan Tech, right? STEM school up in, in the Upper Peninsula. You know, there's a pretty decent gay community up there, but it's like, it's like the guy school that's predominantly white, right? And it's a very isolating space to have. And so just happens to be like a lot of my friends are, you know, cis white guys and that's great, that's fine. But it's, I've had to have this conversation a lot and more than oftentimes it goes well. And if it doesn't, then they're not my friends anymore, I guess. So, you know, we have conversations about it more, I guess, if they if they don't understand and that's about it. Other than that, we're just, my interpersonal relationships haven't changed much. And my family has always been supportive since, you know, my sibling came out as trans when I was really young. So it's all good on that front, too. What all of these responses have in common is the desire to maintain relationships with people who share similar experiences of gender. This is often because of the unique issues that non-binary individuals run into when engaging in interpersonal relationships with people who don't understand their gender or their experience at the same level that other non-binary people or trans people might. For example, one research article that we looked at from 2017 examined microaggressions in the friendships of non-binary individuals. Although these authors primarily examined trans individuals in general, they did find some specific differences between those who identified as non-binary and those who did not, so those who identified as binary trans. So what they did was they presented these people with a survey where they asked about several different types of microaggressions and different situations in which they might arise or what those might look like. They then took those responses and conducted a qualitative research method called thematic analysis, where a bunch of different people read through all the responses and try to group them into themes, then compare the groups that they came up with with each other to try and come to an objective, cohesive decision on what themes were present in these responses. They identified three main themes with 16 sub-themes. 
And the language used in this article was itself pretty interesting in that the authors presented non-binary individuals as deviations from the sort of binary trans norm. So they would first present what binary trans people thought, and then from there they would see if they could draw a comparison to see how non-binary people might be different from what's quote-unquote normal for trans people. That really is an interesting way of presenting this research. I feel like recently more people are identifying with non-binary conceptualizations of gender, even outnumbering binary trans individuals in some regions. Setting the binary trans as the baseline just seems like a contrived way to emphasize the binary again in a context where you'd expect that all experiences of trans identities would be valued. Yeah, for sure. Granted, this was published in 2017, so the manuscript was probably drafted somewhere around 2014, 2015 or so before submission. That said, it still does, at the very least, reflect how quickly these things have been changing, for sure. So on to the results of this study. Their first theme that they found was authenticity. And an example of a sub-theme here was intrinsic authenticity. Binary trans individuals may get people questioning whether they're really men or women, whereas non-binary individuals more so have to worry about the trans community itself coming at them and asking whether they're really trans, whether they're really different enough from both their gender assigned at birth or the quote-unquote opposite gender to be considered a thing of their own or whether, as some in the trans community claim, they're really just begging for attention. Most of the other authenticity microaggression sub-themes included misperceptions about what it means to be trans. For example, a cis person might look at someone who's non-binary and assume that that says something specific about their sexuality. So, for example, if they have a friend who they know is assigned female at birth and that friend identifies as non-binary and presents androgynously, they may then assume that that friend must be a lesbian, as if there is such a definite link between one's gender and one's sexuality. The next overarching theme they identified was visibility. The visibility theme primarily included ways in which trans individuals were forced to be more visible than they wanted to, such as friends outing or misgendering them, and also pressure from trans friends to be more outspoken advocates for the trans community instead of living a sort of low-profile or stealth trans life. The final category, which is negotiation of identity and social contexts, found microaggressions in three specific social contexts with sub-themes related to each one. These contexts were community contexts, public social contexts, and private social contexts. So you might wonder, hey, aren't institutions not until the next episode? If you were to wonder that, you would be entirely correct. However, we have to acknowledge, as these researchers did, that even our one-on-one -on -one interactions with each other take place in a broader social context. One interesting finding was that both feminist communities and religious communities tended to exclude all variety of trans individuals, either because they're not really a woman or committing some sin against a higher power. And that exclusion of trans people, both trans men and trans women from feminist contexts is a nice preview to JK Rowling in the next episode. In public contexts, trans people's friends tended to have varying reactions, ranging from avoiding them in public to tokenizing them, to gain what the authors call progressive points for being associated with someone who's trans or has some other kind of non-traditional gender identity. 
In these contexts, non-binary individuals were often flattened by their friends into a homogenous category of trans that forced them into a binary role. So even though a non-binary individual may identify a certain way, if a cis person looks at them and says, oh, hey, you're trans, that means you're exactly like this. They really just kind of stereotype them and maybe push them into a binary role that they don't want. Finally, in private contexts, non-binary individuals had experiences with their friends putting up increased emotional distance between them because they were confused about what non-binary identities meant, eventually resulting in ending their friendship. That last point reminds me of another article published by these authors in 2014. This one analyzed the barriers and benefits of friendships with people of different gender identities and sexualities. What they found was that trans and genderqueer folks sometimes preferred friendships with cishet people despite them not understanding the full extent of having a non-normative identity. Why did these authors say these folks preferred cishet individuals as friends? And for those of us who aren't initiated into the full slang, cishet means cisgender, so not trans, and heterosexual. There are a couple different reasons. One of them is that transgender nonconforming folks who have cishet friends reported in this study that they felt more normal and that they passed better in the public sphere than they would in a group of transgender nonconforming friends. And another reason was that cishet friends were reported as more emotionally stable than their queer friends. And conversations are not overwhelmingly about gender or sexuality issues, so this offers queer people a break from shared traumas within transgender friend circles. Man, that makes a lot of sense. So there's both like this set of extrinsic benefits where they benefit from being around cishet people in broader social contexts. And then also these kind of intrinsic benefits where as friends, having conversations is less stressful, both because of really increased emotional stability, possibly because they don't have to deal with such traumas and also just not having to deal with those traumas, right? Not having to be in a context where they're constantly reminded of the microaggressions, larger acts of hate crime and all these other things that happen. And they can just kind of enjoy their lives as happy trans people with happy friends. So Peyton, we've talked a lot about friendships. Could you tell us a little bit about this study that looked at romantic relationships? Yeah, so this study was an online survey, and participants were asked to give examples of microaggressions that they experienced from their romantic partners. These responses were sorted into three categories. Microassaults are conscious and deliberate, violent actions based on gender identity meant to hurt you. Examples include name-calling, avoidant behavior, and purposeful discriminatory actions. Microinsults are unintentional behavioral or verbal slights that partners are typically unaware of. These convey rudeness, insensitivity, or demeaning one's gender identity. Finally, microinvalidations are unintentional verbal comments or behaviors that exclude, negate, or nullify your thoughts, feelings, or experience reality on the basis of your gender identity. Like we saw in the articles that I talked about a few moments ago, relationships that had any combination of these three microaggressions tended to end. This was because of either confusion about a non-binary partner's gender identity or a flat-out refusal to be curious about and empathetic toward a partner's non-binary experience. Half of the people who responded to the survey were agender, and the experiences of agender folks are the subject of our next research article. More specifically, folks who are both agender and asexual. This is because, as the researchers argue, these people have an especially unique understanding of gender and sexuality since they don't vibe with either system. So in this research study published in 2019, Dr. Karen Cuthbert interviewed 21 asexual participants about their relationship to gender. 
Half of these participants self-identified as agender, gender-neutral, or otherwise genderless. Some participants viewed gender as merely a tool to organize sexuality or heteronormativity, and as such was useless to them. Meanwhile, two-thirds of participants described gender as being irrelevant to them due to their lack of sexuality. So kind of in both of these cases, these agender, asexual individuals identified sexuality as the primary reason for gender. So for them, separating sexuality and gender becomes really impossible, because lacking one necessarily means lacking the other. This is an interesting finding, too, because as the author notes, many queer academic discourses and communities alike follow a separatist model for sexuality and gender. So the people studying the phenomena and the people living the phenomena are experiencing really different things. Because one would expect, like, if as the academics are theorizing, sexuality and gender really are entirely separate, you would expect that about as many agender people would ascribe to whatever sexualities that gendered people ascribe to. So you might expect that there should be as many, I don't know, heterosexual cis men as there are heterosexual agender individuals, and that's just not the case. Most agender individuals seem to be, at least anecdotally and in some limited research we've been able to observe, asexual and aromantic as well. But because academics tend to separate these two things, some participants were hesitant to even mention the link that they experienced between agender and asexuality. They didn't want to encroach on this field that they saw as having a very established view that just really didn't fit their experience. And as far as relationships go, many asexual people felt that embodying some level of gender-neutral presentation was necessary to prevent others from making sexual advances on them. This was common no matter what a person's romantic orientation was, aromantic to panromantic. So Peyton, we've heard a lot today about microaggressions, microinvalidations, larger acts of exclusion, even trying to avoid romantic relationships entirely. Is there any hope for people who identify as non-binary? Well, Zenon, there is actually light at the end of the tunnel. There isn't a lot of it, but it's, <laughs> but it's there. Our last article for today looks at the ways that non-binary adults experience microaffirmations in romantic relationships. Yes, microaffirmations, not microaggressions. Four kinds of microaffirmations were identified in participants' responses. Identity validations, identity endorsements, active learning, and active defense. Could you break those down for us a little more? Of course. Identity validations are pretty straightforward, I think. There are moments where partners affirm worthiness, acknowledge their partner's identity as valid or real, avoid unwanted language around their partner's identity, and apologize or correct their own microaggressions that they've had before. Identity endorsements include using affirming language, such as titles or preferred pronouns, switching language at times of change, and making efforts to reduce their partner's dysphoria through encouragement. These encouragements might look like, you look gorgeous today, or your facial hair looks great. Partners who engage in active learning take the initiative to learn more about non-binary issues and identities. This engagement reduces non-binary folks' burden of justifying or explaining their experience to their partners. Active defense manifests as partners correcting comments or assumptions from others about non-binary identities. Another dimension of this theme presents itself when a partner expands their allyship to the transgender community as a whole by speaking up when someone questions the validity of trans identities. So, these self-identified affirmations range from people actively correcting others who misgender their partner to simple, sentimental statements of loving their partner as they are. 
For the participants, their partners expressing love and kindness was an extension of gender affirmation. They seem like a normal enough set of actions to take in a relationship with someone you really care about, right? Complimenting them, defending them, learning about them. I think it's interesting how the researchers here show the power of language and how that shifts in different contexts. Word choices that many binary couples don't even think about become manifestations of the safety and security for non-binary partners. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic note to leave off on today. Even though non-binary folks experience all sorts of awful interactions, we found out through this research that there are still ways that partners are finding to support non-binary individuals. These microaffirmations can serve as a great model to those of us who want to support the special NB in our lives. Thank you all for listening to Non-Binary Gender Scholarship and Experience. Join us next week for an overview of the impact of institutions on folks outside the binary. And on that exciting note, we will see you next time.